This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. What are your guilty pleasures? Here's what a random sampling of New Yorkers said when we asked them that question. What are my guilty pleasures? Wow. Um, you don't want to put it on the air. Well, smoke. How about that? I don't know if I really have many guilty pleasures. Um, I mean, I do things that are fun that would be embarrassing if I told people, like dance in the mirror by myself to loud music. <laughs> um, chocolate. Um, junk food. <laughs> Sleeping late. Emo music. The only certain songs. <laughs> I hate emo music, but there are certain songs that I do like that I won't admit to anybody. Um, another guilty pleasure that I have is, uh, I don't know if it's, a, if it's a guilty pleasure, but I have a foot fetish and a fetish for high heel shoes. Don't tell anyone I dance in my room by myself. <laughs> don't worry. We all do it. For me, though, guilty pleasures include my faithfully and annually renewed subscription to Glamour magazine. I devour it as soon as it arrives in my mailbox every month, and I have to admit I love it more than I love even The New Yorker. Now, I know I'm not alone in that. For every friend who asks me why on earth I'm reading that, I have another who reads the same thing, or something similar. But I was surprised to learn recently that my own guilty pleasure is the subject of academic research. Fordham Communication and Media Studies professor Amy Aronson looks at women and the media, And she says that women's magazines probably aren't quite as guilty a pleasure as we might believe. Aronson's the author of a book on early women's magazines. That book is called Taking Liberties, and it's up from Prager. She also teaches a course to undergraduates about said magazines. I visited Amy Aronson in her magazine-strewn office on Fordham's Lincoln Center campus, and we talked about women's magazines, guilty pleasures, and why they might not be one and the same. So we're here to talk about uh, women's magazines, and there's a big pile of magazines in front of us here. There's Glamour and Shape and Better Homes and Gardens and Red Book and Essence and Family Circle. What are sort of main emotions that we feel when we think about, about women's magazines? What are some of the words that would come up in most of our minds? Well... One of the terms that comes to my mind immediately uh, is a term that I use in my book uh, to really frame my introduction, which is that I I feel a sense of guilt and a sense of pleasure at the same time. Um, As I sit here with this pile of magazines, all I really want to do is grab them and start leaping through them. I want to dive into this pile. I feel a strong drive to, to get into them. I just like reading them. I like holding them. I like looking at them. I like thinking about them. At the same time, my brain is saying, why do you like holding them? Why do you like reading these? Um, There are a lot of messages, even just scanning the cover lines, that I disagree with, um, that I feel are potentially demeaning to women, um, certainly don't uh, tap into the more uh, intellectual and political side of my own uh, personality and character, Um, yet I am drawn to them, yet I'm curious about them. Um, And that conflict uh, has come to my mind uh, ever since I first started reading women's magazines as a teenager. So what, what's some of the stuff on the, um, on the cover here that attracts your attention? Well, certainly the focus on appearance, on a woman's appearance, uh, is uh, strongly documented in the cover lines. Uh, I'm looking at Glamour right now, and um, some of the largest uh, cover lines with bullets next to them are, you know, easiest hair tricks, sexiest dresses in every size, um, all of which are, you know, fashion items are very oriented toward a way a woman should adorn herself to be attractive in public. Um, that has long been um, a strong uh, strain, a strong theme um, of women's magazines, beginning with some of the earliest popular ones in the um, early to mid-19th century. 
So you covered the guilt. Um, why is this a pleasure? Why do you, what re- what magazines do you read first of all, and why do you like them? Um, I. I'm beginning to age out of some of my traditional favorites, I'm afraid, um, but uh, I still really, I really enjoy O Magazine, uh, a newcomer, Oprah Winfrey's uh, magazine. Um, I still read Glamour. I still enjoy Cosmo. Um, if I bump into a red book, I won't turn it down. I think, for me, uh, part of the pleasure is, and this is something that I wrote about a lot or tried to capture uh, in writing the book, um, what I like about women's magazines is the variety of discourses that one encounters when one reads it. Um, although uh, certainly the contemporary magazine emphasizes beauty and appearance, sexual allure, um, and in some magazines for a little bit older uh, demographic uh, marriage, they still present a wide array of kind of colliding ideas. Um, and what I enjoy about magazines is the opportunity it, it pr- they provide for me, the imperative, in fact, I think they present, of putting together my own narrative. And that, I think that that part of the magazine is underappreciated. It's under-commented on. Certainly when I was researching the book, I saw uh, very few uh, other treatments that even um, were willing to address the contradictions within the magazine, the, the multiple discourses within the magazine. And that, I think, is why some women love them and why we continue to love them, even when, you know, we have many more opportunities than we ever had had before um, and, you know, arguably have many better things to do. So what is, um, what's the traditional academic take on women's magazines? Most academic books tend to follow in line with uh, Betty Friedan's rather withering criticism of the women's magazine uh, in The Feminine Mystique. Um, uh, the Feminine Mystique, written in 1963, uh, was a groundbreaking work. It um, is often credited with providing the language and the impetus for uh, middle-class women to uh, join the second wave of feminism. Um, but in that book, Friedan basically blames the women's magazine for brainwashing women into thinking that their only, um, their only value lies in fulfilling their femininity. Friedan suggests that the magazine is all-powerful over women um, and therefore that um, women readers are rather uh, passive recipients of these messages um, and that the magazine rather single-mindedly pursues this agenda of constraining women um, or, um, um, yes, constraining women within the feminine mystique. Many critics uh, follow Friedan in further elaborating this idea um, that the you know the women's magazine is uh, guilty of constraining women in a very limited and a very disempowering identity, um, and that that has been their solitary aim, largely uh, for the sake of profits. Um, some more recent criticism has begun to look at um, the divergence of discourses within the magazine has begun to look at the fact that multiple departments, multiple contributors, um, and uh, various genres, all of which are contained within a single, you know, under a single roof, um, do present some tensions, do present some collisions. Um, but by and large, the, um, the dominant discourse, if you will, the dominant academic discourse on the women's magazine has been that it's single-minded, um, with a uh, kind of unitary assault on women's uh, freedom and women's empowerment. So what's your, uh, what's your issue with that? I have a couple of issues with that approach. One is I think it oversimplifies the magazine as a form. 
Um, I don't think that certainly any literary form, uh, but least of all perhaps the magazine, is capable of presenting such a uh, unitary story. Um, there's always valence in language. There's always valence in what narrative. What is valence? Valence is um, those parts, those um, potential meanings, those implications that don't uh, fit a single understanding. Not every piece fits into a perfect uh, puzzle. There, there is stuff that's left over. There's stuff that uh, goes against the grain. Um, and you know, these kinds of arguments are made in literary studies. My, my PhD is in American literature, um, so I encountered these kinds of arguments in literary studies around novels. But uh, when it comes to magazines, which are more structurally multiple than novels, we never hear these kinds of arguments. Um, and I think we particularly don't hear these kinds of arguments when it comes to women's magazines, um, which have, you know, for a long time received little more than kind of academic ridicule, partly for being popular cultural forms and partly for being popular culture forms that are very popular with women. Um, as a related concern, I really felt that a form that has been so popular with women for so many years, decades. The first women's magazine was published in America in 1792, you know, in Philadelphia, for that matter. As soon as we had a U.S. Constitution, as soon as we had a country, we had women's magazines. And um, in the decades to follow, we had hundreds of women's magazines uh, being published uh, at a time when we had no real publishing industry. We had very, you know, very few print publications, um, yet women's magazines were proliferating across the then United States. Um, and they were almost instantly popular. Many of the earliest magazines survived longer and were more profitable than other types of magazines produced at the same time under the same conditions. Um, women's magazines, as many of us know, have continued to be um, incredibly popular, incredibly profitable, uh, even as culture has changed dramatically, even as women's lives have changed uh, dramatically in those hundreds of years. Um, and so I felt that, um, and do feel, that those readings underestimate women readers. They um, really don't give credit to uh, popular women readers for um, having the ability to find something that is self-affirming, that is positive for them, that is pleasurable to them. Basically, those readings assume that uh, women are popular women readers are engaged in this kind of act of self-sabotage every time they read a women's magazine. And I thought that was not fair and, um, at the very least, an incomplete understanding of what you know, these centuries of women have been getting out of magazines. I feel pretty, oh so pretty. I feel pretty and witty and bright, and I pity any girl who isn't me tonight. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest on the show today is Amy Aronson. Aronson's an assistant professor of journalism and media studies at Fordham, and she's the author of the book Taking Liberties, Early American Women's Magazines and Their Readers. That book's out from Prager. Let's get back to that conversation. Before we go on, I'm interested in the idea that women's magazines represent sort of a, an array of voices, because I've never thought about that. Um, and I would love to just look at one or a couple of these magazines and just see what you're talking about there. Okay. 
Well, certainly I should say that the contemporary magazine um, is far more sophisticated and has become far more streamlined uh, in its voices than earlier magazines did. Um, that is to say, you know, now that they are much more professionally managed, they are parts of um, not only giant uh, publishing companies, but uh, global uh, conglomerates, um, so that we do have more um, targeted marketing um, and more pieces that are specifically designed and assigned and written to um, fit into a more a narrowly and particularly conceived idea of what the magazine is, quote, about. Um, nevertheless, um, even the contemporary magazine, you will often see um, some articles that go against the dominant idea of women as little more than, you know, beautiful sex objects preparing for marriage. Um, moreover, sometimes in the contemporary magazine, um, you will see uh, advertising copy that rather goes against that grain. And, you, you know, you have this kind of interplay or competition between discourses at times, between editorial copy and advertising copy. So I'm leafing through glamour. Um, a lot depends on the editor um, of the magazine, where, how much of these competing discourses um, is included, uh, and where they are placed. Um, I'm looking to see. Yes, you may have to. I have to say I have a personal interest in you finding something redeeming in glamour, because that's actually my glamour that I subscribe to. <laughs> Can I, can I ask you why, what you get out of it? Yeah, um, I really, it's funny, I talk about this with my husband, because he thinks basically that they're totally useless, but I really just, I just like reading them, plus I, I really like the glamour do's and don'ts, because I find them very useful. Although, <laughs> I do too, <laughs> actually. <laughs> um, I don't always follow them, but I kind of enjoy the, you know, sort of back and forth between me and the magazine. Yeah, well, that's something that has a long history also. Women, you know, women readers of contemporary women's magazines are legendary for their loyalty, and for a long time that's been the case. Um, and women have been invited to participate and contribute to women's magazines to a greater extent um, than other kinds uh, of magazines and certainly other kinds of uh, press forms since the beginning. Um, in fact, the earliest women's magazines um, were populated by contributions from readers and uh, they perpetuated themselves by a kind of reader response dynamic. So one woman would submit something and, you know, the next month, if the magazine survived, um, you might find responses to that earlier article or continuations in that earlier article by other women readers. And there was this give and take. Um, and the magazine, even into the contemporary times, has retained some vestiges of that. Um, that heritage uh, through having larger letters sections, for instance, more reader contests, uh, for instance, and other ways, um, particularly their websites now, have more opportunities for readers to contribute and speak back um, than some other magazines do. So would you say these women's magazines, you know, as opposed to, say, the New Yorker or Harper's or something, there's sort of more of an emphasis on, like, community building? Absolutely. Um, women's magazines have made their reputation and um, have maintained as a kind of marketing strategy um, that's that feeling of community among readers, that the magazine is a vehicle through which women connect to other women. Um, and that was formulated, you know, very early on, 1820s and 30s, the earliest magazines, um, and has remained, I think, a, you know, an elemental component uh, even to the present day. 
Okay, so let's look at glamour. One redeeming quality in glamour. Um, here's a you know a uh, one-page um, editorial, uh, real stories. It's called 31 Days of Giving Back," and it's different ways of um, contributing um, in a in a philanthropic way. Different ways of getting involved um, in one's community. Um, there's a picture of Bono and uh, Oprah Winfrey together uh, in the in the upper right-hand corner. Now, this is the kind of thing that has a long history in women's culture, women's benevolence associations, women's involvement in um, community projects, and so on. Um, so there is a history largely formulated and uh, promoted by some of the best-selling women's magazines through the 19th century and even into the 20th century. Um, nevertheless, this is an article that's not about, you know, looking sexy or having the right lipstick or, um, you know, buying lingerie to drive your man wild. It's something deeper and it's something broader. Um, and to me, that is a, you know, there, there's some tension there um, be, um, with the kinds of ideas that Betty Friedan, for example, and others said uh, were the only things to be found in women's magazines. That's an ad. I was interested in what you said about the advertising. Um, yes, some, a lot of times the advertising in women's magazines reflects um, an image of women as strong and empowered and physically active, um, particularly, of course, in the health magazines. You know, in Shape, I suspect if I looked through here, I'd find some Nike advertising, advertising or Adidas advertising with some very strong images of active um, women. They'd be beautiful also, but they would be strong. They wouldn't be waif-like. They wouldn't look strung out. You know, they would be strong, active, uh, healthy women. Um, and certainly there is a long history uh, in women's magazines of advertising that goes against some of the editorial aims, uh, the patriarchal editorial aims of magazines. Um, again, that's a, you know, it's assumed in much of the critique that the reason women's magazines seek to disempower women um, by, you know, containing them in the feminine mystique um, is that it's profitable that way. Keep them anxious, keep them unstable, keep them buying products in order to feel like they're okay. Um, and the assumption there is that patriarchy and capitalism go hand in hand, always, or hand in glove in this case. Um, but, you know, the truth is that that has not always been the case in women's magazines uh, or elsewhere. Uh, for example, um, in the 1890s, um, you know, the, the big new product to burst on the scene that, t that uh, purchased a lot of advertising in women's magazines was the bicycle. The bicycle was introduced, um, and there was a lot of patriarchal concern about women riding bikes. Um, people didn't like the idea of women uh, being able to go off freely, you know, without chaperones. Um, many people were uncomfortable with the image of women um, pedaling while sitting on a leather seat. <laughs> um, the, you know, the kind of sexual uh, undertones there disturbed some people. Um, and so there was a lot of editorializing in women's magazines against women riding bicycles. It was considered improper. Some suggested it was indecent. There were a lot of articles that tried to dissuade women from buying and riding bicycles. But, of course, advertisers wanted women to buy and ride bicycles. Um, and so the advertising around that always showed women off um, freely, happily, smiling, sometimes with uh, coats or blouses kind of um, trailing off behind them as the, you know, with their face into the wind. Um, they were, uh, the, a lot of times the copy emphasized the liberation or freedom that they would get. Um, and so, you know, this was an example where um, the 
uh, institutional interests of the magazine, the advertisers, flouted the ideological interests of the magazine, the patriarchal interests. Um, and you know, when you when you look at that. Um, you know, a lot of people would say, well, they always go hand in hand, but here's an example where they really don't. You know, and which, who's to say which is the preferred reading? Who's to say which is the reading that women are more likely to take away? Well, it's up to the individual woman, isn't it? It's up to the reader to negotiate those um, discrepant images, those divergent pieces of advice, and decide for herself what she thinks about riding a bicycle. And you say there are some sort of more modern examples of this, like with um, with birth control advertising. Yes, sometimes you see it um, with uh, uh, birth control advertising. Um, you often see images also around uh, women and work, uh, women in technology. Um, even in family magazines, you will sometimes see advertising that you know has women in front of a computer or a mom with her kids. Yes, but also sitting at a desk um, using technology. Increasingly, um, there is auto advertising in women's magazines, um, and you'll see images of women you know in charge of the car, you know going off on her own. Certainly, uh, having the authority to select and to drive her own car. The kinds of things that you know definitely um, go against this idea of women as dependent, homebound uh, creatures with no authority of their own. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV ninety point seven and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest on the show today is Amy Aronson. She's an assistant professor of journalism and media studies at Fordham, and she is the author of the book Taking Liberties, Early American Women's Magazines and Their Readers, out from Prager. A little later this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarki. On today's show, a look at some of the weird stuff people do to make a living in New York. That's ahead at 7.30. Now, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Amy Aronson. It seems to me as a as actually a reader of, of these women's magazines that the big criticism about their their take now on, you know, the sort of modern girl's life, you know, glamour girl or cosmo girl or whoever would be, you know, yes, a woman is, is a professional woman and yes, she might have authority in her office, but she still has these sort of specific issues that, you know, she wants to look slim, she wants to look sexy for her husband, maybe she has, or boyfriend or whoever, or maybe she has um, some internal issues about childcare or what she's going to do, but she's still the Cosmo girl or the the glamour girl. Absolutely. Um, I think that that's certainly one area where I have a pretty strong critique of women's magazines, um, that at, at most um, women are given kind of um, individualistic solutions to things. Um, that, you know, women's magazines will rarely promote um, women acting collectively, politically, in opposition to um, mainstream culture. That's not always the case. Um, occasionally you'll see something uh, presented on, say, a, you know, a debate in a debate format about birth control or, you know, some other um, contemporary uh, woman, you know, issue that's um, important to women. Um, but for the most part, um, you know, we do see women's magazines promoting the idea of, you know, it's an individualistic solution. If you don't have adequate child care, it's not something you need to look to the government for or the corporation for. You know, you need to figure out how to de-stress your life and multitask and do things so that you yourself can solve it. You shouldn't join with other women um, to press for changes on a broader social or political level. Um, that, unfortunately, is a comparatively recent turn in women's magazines. Um, not that long ago, um, with the women's magazines, the major ones, 
would organize women in pursuing um, legislation, would organize women in opposing um, certain uh, laws uh, or bringing to the attention of uh, legislators um, issues that um, they felt you know, absolutely needed to be changed in our country. Um, women's magazines did it um, in part out of um, a, a marketing strategy that it brought more readers, it brought more attention, but in part out of a commitment to their readers and their readers' needs and their readers' interests um, and their readers' drives. Um, that element has, um, to some extent, you know, has receded from the contemporary magazine. So when, when you say fairly recently, when was that? Uh, up until 1940s. Oh, okay. You so know, not, not last year. No, 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 no. Not last year recently. Uh, in, into the mid-20th century. So let's get back to that, that history of these women's magazines. You say that the mix of guilt and pleasure that we feel when we look at uh, women's magazines like Mademoiselle and Ladies Home Journal, it's not just some, you know, sort of post-second wave feminism anomaly. It's actually integral to the development of these magazines. What does that mean? Tell me that story. Beginning with the uh, success of women's magazines. Beginning about 1830, uh, we started seeing the first really successful women's magazines that you know lasted for years and began to make money for their producers and so on. Um, there began to be, at the same time, I think part and parcel of that success was an attitude about the potential of women, uh, about the future of women, um, that was expressed in the articles and uh, was developed through the interaction between readers and writers. Um, and to some extent, this, you know, this attitude was, um, you know, was strong-minded women coming together and saying, you know, um, we're not what you think we are. We're not just uh, ladies uh, at home, um, you know, dithering with little poems and so on. Um, but at the same time as you got these kind of strong-minded women um, writing these kinds of things and developing these kinds of attitudes in women's magazines, you began to have the early feminist press as well um, opposing those women's magazines, opposing the ideology of those magazines, not necessarily the attitudes, but opposing the ideology of those magazines and um, beginning to point out that, um, in their own magazines, by the way, beginning to point out that um, the, some of these ideas, the ideas of domesticity, the ideas about sentimentality um, that uh, magazines in that era began to propound, um, were damaging to women, were, were limiting to women. So in a certain way, the ideas that uh, Friedan brings forward and the debate that surrounded um, that book um, had roots much earlier, 100 years earlier, really. And so I think that readers uh, beginning in the 1840s were also asked to some extent to choose between whether they were feminists, whether they were women's rights women, whether they were strong-minded women, um, or whether they were literary ladies. Um, reading these magazines, um, and so those debates have, you know, have really gotten embedded into the history of the magazine. So, how did this sort of dissonance between uh, ladies' magazines and, and women's magazines impact the way that they developed? How can we see it today? Well, in certain eras, um, you know, the the feminist uh, press receded. Um, but then the commercial press uh, incorporated, commercial women's magazines incorporated some of the elements of politics uh, or dissent. A lot of the you know, less commented on uh, aspects of the early, of women's magazine history is that, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt had a regular column, you know, in popular women's magazines, in Ladies Home Journal. Um, many uh, other uh, political figures um, 
women political figures were uh, covered, were profiled um, in, in these magazines. And so um, even at times when we didn't have an active feminist press of its own, um, we did often have those voices, at least to some extent, expressed, you know, coming out in um, the popular women's magazines of the day. So how could we see the, um, the, that dissonance in a magazine today, like, like Red Book or something? You know, I will say um, that it is important to recognize that the, that dissonance is um, considerably muted today. Um, is not, um, there, there just isn't as much divergent discourse in contemporary magazines, at least in most of them, um, that, uh, as we used to see, you know, even 20 or 30 years ago. Some of it may have to do with marketing sophistication, but some of it also has to do, I think, with the political climate of this moment, um, where, um, you know, voices of dissent and, you know, arguably, uh, particularly women's dissent, Susan Faludi makes the argument that women's dissent has all but disappeared uh, from uh, contemporary discourse in, in her new book. Um, you know, that particularly women's dissent is um, suppressed um, in, you know, in the contemporary press, in, you know, in the public sphere. So let, let's talk about, again, uh, women's magazines today. Okay. What, what do women, do you think, who read uh, women's magazines right now, yeah. what do they get out of them? I think that one thing that women readers get um, out of all kinds of women's culture um, that includes other long derided forms like the soap opera and the romance novel um, is a sense that this is a world that uh, at least ostensibly caters to them, that it's for them, where they're not marginal but um, are centered. Well, Amy Aronson, thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. The show's available as a podcast at WFUV.org, and it's in our audio archive as well. You can also find that on our website. If you have comments or questions about today's show, you can email us. Our address is Conversations at WFUV.org, and we would, of course, love to hear from you. Producing the show this week with help from Liz Brockland and John Stanford, I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend.